Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Today I'm joined by Molly Fool contributor Luis Sanchez, who's here to Help me break down the current state of the online gambling industry. Luis, welcome back on the podcast. Happy to be back. Yeah, great to have you on, Luis. I know this is a this is an area in the market that you've really been focused on, uh, particularly over the past month. I, I know a lot of people, particularly in the U.S., have gotten more interested in online gambling uh, since the Supreme Court uh, lifted federal restrictions on online gambling back in 2018. But it's important to note this is a global industry that's been around for decades, when you look at the online gaming industry today, how big is it? Yeah, so globally, it's uh, I've seen stats that put it at about $450 billion. Yeah, so $450 billion market. And, and you know, outside of the U.S., where, where are the big markets we should be paying attention to? Uh, you know, what, what's the nature of this industry? Yeah, um, the most developed market is, is Europe. Um, I believe the U.K. is probably the, the best regulated um online well gambling is is legal across like italy spain uh the uk there's there's actually also some like weird gray markets in europe like i think germany is technically not legal but the companies still operate there and they pay their taxes which is interesting um australia is actually another really big uh gambling market and then um you know really it's it's a very global it's a very global industry in Asia, there's a few places that are legal. There's a few places that are gray. In Latin America, you kind of see the same thing. And I mean, right now, the biggest catalyst is um, the U.S. and and what and what's going to happen here in the next ten years, five to ten years. Right. A lot of these other industries or these other markets have been around for decades and are really probably at a mature state, honestly, at a, at a state where regulators are starting to, to crack down on the industry somewhat. But when we look at the U.S., really massive growth uh, since legalization took place. Uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania in particular, very mature markets. What are we seeing there when it turn, when it comes uh, to growth? Well, I just, you know, just to make one more comment on the global industry, you know, the really big theme there is really this transition from offline to online. And that's really been the biggest driver of, I, I guess, the really the most interesting way to invest. So, you know, this is like a theme that we've seen it play out in a lot of other industries, whether it's retail, um, you know, and the transition to e-commerce, or, you know, name your industry that's becoming digitized. So this trend, I think right now, online gambling has about an 11% share globally. And that's probably, I mean, in the context of a global pandemic, it's definitely increasing, but it was already increasing about one or 2% per year in regards to penetration. So I think that's just a really interesting global theme. Um, as far as the U.S., as you mentioned, um, you know, huge legal change in uh, 2018 when um, the Supreme Court over, over, overruled um, this law called PAPS. PASPA, uh, which um, basically gave a path for states to legalize sports gambling. Um, And since that, and since that rule has been overturned, we've seen, um, I think about six states go full legalization of sports. 
um, meaning um, some form of like in-person or some form of like online. New Jersey and Pennsylvania really uh, leading the way. Um, and if you just look at the how fast the market's grown in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, you know, you could really get a sense for why um, everyone's so excited for what's going to happen when more states join the party. Right. I mean, you, you see these numbers uh, coming out of New Jersey. Uh, and by, by, by some measures, the New Jersey sports betting market had surpassed Nevada with, within this very short short period of time. And, and you know, Nevada, this is, a, this is a sports betting market that's been around for decades. So, so to see that growth that quickly uh, just, just reflects the, the demand that had been underlying in that market. And you, know, you mentioned some of these black and gray markets outside of the U.S. I think to a certain extent, some of this is black market, people that were, that were otherwise gambling that is now becoming a more transparent part of the market. So, so just kind of bring that opportunity uh, um, to the forefront. As we look outside of the, these early adopter states, Luis, where do we see continued opportunities for growth? Where are the hurdles uh, for this market to continue growing? Yeah, so I think at, at this point, there are uh, 12 states that have um, legalized some form of sports gambling. And there's some nuances and differences between the states. And, um, you know, of those 12, I think only like five or six are, are live today. So there's still um, some of those states are still coming online. A lot, there's a lot of speculation, right, on, well, what's the path forward? What, what can we really expect as this trend kind of develops? And the best, the best framework I've seen for trying to figure this out is really to look at what happened with uh, the daily fantasy sports industry which I think has been going on for about 10 years in the U.S. and required some legislative action to make cash play uh, legal. And what we saw with daily fantasy sports, which is really primarily DraftKings and FanDuel, how they got started, is um, 42 states in the U.S. legalize daily fantasy sports. Um, so then logically, we could probably conclude that um, – 42 states is probably the higher end of what we could expect in terms of which states are likely to, to then go a step further and legalize sports gambling. And then there's also, um, you know, in addition to sports gambling, there's this whole other, there's this whole other online form of gambling, which people refer to as online casino or iGaming. This is like roulette, you know, uh, blackjack, craps, those sorts of things, the types of games that you would play in a casino that is available, you know, in, in an online format through your phone, like a mobile game. Yeah, exactly. So th there, you know, there's, there's um, some cultural nuances around how, how widely adopted iGaming will, will be legalized, right? Because I, I think people are a lot more empathetic to uh, legalizing sports gambling. It tends to be a lot, it's, it tends to be a less addictive activity because, um, you know, you have to wait for a sports event, so you can't just sit around and, you know, run a bunch of sports bets, typically. Whereas iGaming, you know, online casino is something where it can really bring out the worst in, in, a, in a gambling addict. So that's definitely, that's definitely an area of online gambling where states are a lot more careful around legalization. So there are some states um, that have already legalized uh, both online sports and online casino, and New Jersey and Pennsylvania are, are two uh, examples of that. And you know, going back to that thought of what, how many states at maturity could legalize i um, i gaming, 
you know, I would expect it to be um, less than the number of states that would legalize sports gambling for those reasons. So if we think that in the next 10 years, 30 to 40 states will probably legalize sports, uh, online sports gambling, you know, it's probably a, a good assumption to make that maybe 20 to 30 states could probably legalize um, iGaming. Um, I guess the, uh, the push and pull of this, though, is that, you know, with what's, what's happened with the economy, a lot of states are actually feeling, feeling more pressure to, to legalize um, sports gambling and iGaming to um, get the tax revenues. So, you know, whereas a year ago, people were talking about one set of assumptions over how large this market could be, I think, you know, one of the, one of the big catalysts for growth here is just kind of a rethinking of, well, you know, maybe on the margin, we could actually get more states legalized gambling, and we could actually get that, we could actually see that happen quicker. And just kind of given the nature of iGaming and iCasino, um, that's actually a more profitable um, source of tax revenue for states. So, you know, assumptions across the board, um, they, they seem to be getting more uh, bullish on, on the prospect for legalization in these different, um, in these different forms of gambling. Right. I guess states need the tax revenue as the economy slows down. And this offers a, a ready access to that. And I guess there were already some arguments out there. Uh, that 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 states, you know, even before coronavirus, that states shouldn't leave uh, this tax revenue on the table and allow their neighbors uh, access to that. And so, so uh, you know, it, that could be a driver for this market. Kind of last thing on, on the, the regulatory aspect and how we should think about uh, um, that before we get into some of these companies operating in this space. Uh, when it comes to legalization, obviously every state has the opportunity uh, to take an approach that is, you know, unique uh, to their own. Uh, uh, you know, framework uh, to, to regulate their market. So, so for these operators in the in the space, how should we think about the complications of navigating, you know, potentially dozens of different unique regulatory environments? Yeah, I I think you know the right way to think about this this market is it's not really you, you can't really view the U.S. as one giant online gambling market, you really have to look at it as 50 different online gambling markets because each state is, is very different uh, in, a number of, in a number of ways. I mean, one important thing to consider is a lot of these states already have um, regional casinos and they're worried about cannibalizing those existing uh, casinos. Other states have um, a presence of a lot of Native American casinos and, you know, there's pushback from the from the tribes on in terms of what they're willing to um, allow happen and then the way that manifests is just a lot of different ways a lot of different approaches that states have taken um, so I mean one one example right is the New Jersey Pennsylvania model which basically says you know if you're geographically located in in the state of New Jersey, um, you know, you could, anything goes, you can, you can go to a casino, you could go to Atlantic city and, and place a wager in person, or you could sign up for the FanDuel app or the DraftKings app and place a wager there. Um, there's other States where they've limited sports gambling to just in person. So, um, New York and Mississippi are, are two examples of, uh, States like that. 
And as you would probably expect, just because of that obvious limitation, um, it's been a lot slower. It's been a lot slower to take off in a state like New York or or uh, Mississippi. And a lot of people actually do expect New York to eventually go through with uh, online gambling legalization, but maybe this is like a baby step. Um, you know, they want to experiment with having sports betting done in person first. And then if it goes well and there's no issues and maybe in like a couple of years, they'll, they'll legislate it online. And then there's, and then there's like in between um, rules where, for example, in Illinois, they had a rule where in order you could, you could gamble online um, and you could open an account, but you had to register the account in person, <laughs> um, which actually that rule was, uh, was actually suspended, I think, uh, largely due to the coronavirus pandemic. And, you know, they, they just realized that, that that hurdle was creating um, unnecessary burden on, on players and casinos. Um, and, and then there's other interesting um, nuances around um, how, how regulation could play out. I think the biggest one is how many licenses a state will, will allow. So, um, you know, if, if, for example, if, uh, if a state, if a state only grants like two or three um, online licenses, well, that's going to limit the market in some ways. Whereas in other states, they might kind of just be a little bit more aggressive and, and just allow maybe like a couple dozen. And um, while, while allowing fewer licenses will, will limit maybe the number of operators, it'll actually, it'll actually help the, uh, the regulators um, more carefully monitor how the market's developing and also more carefully monitor like that idea of socially responsible gambling, which is a pretty big issue. Yeah, and I think that's something we can certainly uh, um, talk about later. You, know, you raised the idea of one of the, the constraints to uptake in some of these jurisdictions has been this need to, to either go in person to register so you can bet online or, or perhaps only bet in a physical casino. And we mentioned earlier this idea that maybe because of coronavirus, states are more likely to legalize to gain access to revenue. If you carry that logic even further, you could say if legalization were to take place, given the environment we're in today, probably a little bit more likely to permit online gambling uh, with less of those in-person restrictions. So again, adds a little bit of a tailwind to this market. Is that enough to really change the thesis for these companies? No, but something to think about when it comes to uh, the potential opportunity uh, for the business. And when it comes to potential opportunity to, to invest in this market um, as an investor, kind of high level where are the buckets that you could go put your money into if you wanted to go invest in this market today? Where are the opportunities to do so? Yeah, so the, the first really interesting thing I'll point out here is that the, the most experienced um, operators are all, are all European companies just because that's the most developed market. So you go to a market like the UK and there's maybe like a dozen publicly traded online or hybrid online uh, in-person gambling companies. And a lot of those companies are trying to set up shop in the U.S. now, now that there's this, you know, great growth opportunity as they perceive it. Um, and there's really like multiple pieces you need to establish an online uh, gambling operation. Um, you know, the first thing that you need in the U.S. is you need um, market access. You need a license. 
and the way that's handled in most states is is administered through um, the casinos, the, the land-based casinos that already have um, gambling licenses. And um, so what you're seeing in a lot of cases is like an online player from Europe partnering with um, a land-based casino here to, to form either a new entity or in some cases just to vertically integrate and like merge. Um, and another, you know, the another important, another really important piece, and probably the the most important piece, other than access, is you need a brand, because um, just because you set up a website that allows people to gamble doesn't necessarily mean people will know to go to that website and gamble. And you know, these European companies like William Hill um, or GVC or Flutter Entertainment, which are very large European operators. They don't have American brands, or they didn't have American brands, and, and they're now trying to figure that out. So I believe uh, GVC, for example, has partnered with MGM. Flutter has acquired FanDuel, and um, you know, there's there's been a whole bunch of other interesting partnerships. And then I think the last important piece that you really that you need, and you probably can't um, disregard it, is you need to you need to be able to have that operational expertise to know how to power the back end. Um, so that's like the IT aspect, you know, knowing how to manage um, payments. And there's you know just because this is like geofenced for 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 uh, regulatory reasons, it it's it's actually quite complicated. And then each state has its own unique rules around like what kind of bets can be placed how large the bets can be placed, um, how do you monitor player accounts. So that IT backend is actually quite complicated. And um, and I think the European players are, this is going back to the European players, this is why they're really well equipped to handle this because you know in Europe they are dealing with you know multiple jurisdictions, whether you know, a company like Flutter will have its UK operations, it'll have its Irish operations, it'll have its Spanish and Italian operations. And it's using the same backend, but it knows how to kind of plug in and modify the tech backend to deal with these different markets. Um, so I, I think the real, the real important takeaway here, though, is that um, online gambling is a very different kind of business than a land-based casino. And, you know, I don't think that you can assume that a, that a company that has traditionally operated as a land-based casino will automatically be a good operator as an online, um, as an online casino, just because there's a, there's a lot of nuances there. Um, in fact, I was, I was speaking to someone in the industry um, who said um, if he was if he was hiring if he was starting a new online casino and he had a choice of who he could hire someone who used to run a land-based casino or someone who used to run an e-commerce store he would go with the he would go with the person who could run the e-commerce store because he thinks that running an e-commerce business like a Shopify store is actually a lot more uh, similar to running an online casino which I think it, which I think is a really fascinating insight. Yeah, there's so many ways you can go off, off of that that observation, this idea that I guess a casino is more of a hospitality brand, a hotel versus, you know, for these online companies, it's all about driving demand, whether it's via search or advertising 
or branding, I think, yeah, that, that, that certainly does seem uh, like a different skill set. So it sounds like, uh, uh, from your perspective, Luis, uh, the areas of the market that, that are most interesting to pay attention to today are these tech-focused operators or folks providing the software on the back end that's really going to power uh, the online segment uh, of growth in sports betting and other online betting opportunities. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it's not like the tech companies could just go on their own because they still do need a partner in some form with the land-based casinos just for the, the market access. So it really creates a very interesting web of like partnerships, joint ventures, and you know now we're starting to see mergers and acquisitions. So it's a very dynamic market to, to analyze. Yeah, you mentioned mergers and acquisitions, and there's, uh, you know, the two companies that we've, we've kind of danced around uh, here is DraftKings and Flutter Entertainment, which is the parent of, of FanDuel. Uh, these are the big names, the industry DraftKings, the last three months up 231%. Flutter still doing quite well, up 95%. Both of these companies have had a number of, of mergers in recent months uh, to really bring their uh, uh, total offering uh, together under one umbrella. And I, I think given the interest in these companies, it's worth taking some time dive into them more significantly. Let's take them in turn. So when you look at Flutter Entertainment, this parent company of FanDuel, what can you tell us about that business and their assets? Yeah, so I recently wrote a piece for Fool.com on Flutter and just kind of describing all the various assets that it owns. And it's actually really impressive. So some of these brands, even if you're not a gambler, you probably have heard of them. Like they own um, Poker Stars, the number one poker company in the world. They own, um, you know, the, they have the number one market share in uh, the UK in terms of their online gambling um, through a couple of different assets, one called Skybet, another one called Paddy Power. They also own um, a really large online um, betting exchange called Betfair. They have the number one um, gambling business in Australia. And now in the US, um, you know, they have uh, FanDuel, they also have this, this kind of upstart FanDuel competitor called a FoxBet, which has a really interesting media deal with Fox Sports, which it was just launched in 2019 in the fall. But I actually think FoxBet, the strategy could, could actually really meaningfully have take market share uh, once we start to get sports back. So, you know, Flutter, it doesn't get a lot of coverage. Um, in the U.S. because it trades in it trades in London, it has an ADR that that American investors could access. But if you look at it, it's really kind of the behemoth. And in the early states like uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, they actually have more market share than DraftKings. And um, so, by all measures, Flutter, you know, vis-a-vis FanDuel, is currently the market leader in the U.S. as well as internationally. Yeah, that, that relationship with Fox, I find particularly interesting when they acquired uh, the Stars group that came with uh, that, that Poker Stars asset as well. That's how they got access to Fox Bet, and that came with it, uh, uh, Fox's stake uh, in the Stars group. And, and along with that uh, uh, stake, Fox has an option to raise its stake in FanDuel uh, to up to 18.5% by 2021. Obviously, having a media partner with that significant of an ownership um, in your company certainly gives them an incentive uh, to promote your brand. And, you know, Fox has those NFL rights, has those uh, those really important sports rights. Uh, what opportunity does that give to them, given how marketing is going to be really important in the early days as this, this industry grows? Yeah. So 
it's really, it actually is, it, it could be a very effective strategy. And, you know, the, the playbook for Foxbet was really established in the UK through um, this, this entity called Skybet, which, um, you know, Sky is, is a UK based um, broadcaster. And, you know, they created this, um, basically this online sports gambling slash media brand um, which really leveraged that kind of broadcast platform and, and tying together a betting platform with, you know, with the way that the sports content was, was being shown. And, you know, it quickly actually rose to be the number one uh, sports betting platform in the UK. And this is, and, and this is really interesting because the UK is, is a market where literally these, these uh, betting brands have been around for more than a hundred years. So the fact that in the last, you know, handful of years, a new, a new company with just a really savvy media strategy could come out and become the number one brand really says a lot to how powerful the strategy could be, which is why I think it could actually work in the U S you know, that being said, FanDuel and DraftKings have a really big head start. Um, And and the and the biggest reason they have that head start is because they've been off they've been um, already offering uh, daily fantasy sports for um, you know I think the last decade basically, and so you they they have already kind of established brand equity, but probably more importantly is they have these massive databases of pre existing customers in each state and nationally. So they have you know they already know the names, the email addresses, and they have credit cards for people who are already inclined to bet on sports, which is just a huge advantage. Right. I mean, the the Venn diagram of people who are into fantasy sports and the people that like to bet on sports has a whole heck of a lot of overlap. And if you've been able to develop these customers for a number of years and build relationships, that that's certainly um, a valuable asset. We're going to get into the draftings here in one second. Just last thing on, on, on FanDuel, we mentioned the international part of the business. Uh, we, we've talked offline about about some some regulation coming in place and how that that may affect uh, these international players. Is there any concern with you uh, when it comes to those assets of Flutter and whether they may be impaired by some of this regulatory action overseas? Yeah. Um, so Flutter Flutter's largest market is the UK, and it also has a, a big operation in uh, Australia and Ireland, and basically all three of these. Um, markets are facing kind of tougher regulation um, than they ever have in the past. So the kinds of things that we're seeing include the, the sales tax on, on gambling ha- has been going up. I think it went up about 5% in the UK and Ireland in the last year. It was increased by 11% in Australia in the last year. And then there's all sorts of other things that regulators can do to um, make it make it uh, tougher to operate these businesses, or I guess make it more, uh, make it stricter. So I think they've placed, they've placed limits on, um, they've barred them from accepting credit card as a form of payment is another example. They've placed limits on um, the kind of, like the size of the bets you could make for um, in-person gambling. So in the UK, they have these uh, betting parlors, which are essentially like retail locations where you could come in, and they have like slot machines and that kind of thing. And um, 
they've basically been been cracking down on that a little bit. So they they reduced the staking limit from a hundred British pounds to two British pounds, so a ninety eight percent reduction in the staking limit. And there's a big risk that although it's not currently being done with online casino, but there's a big risk that it that it could that the the way that the regulators have cracked down on the retail market, they'll do the same with the online market. And that's something that, that affects Flutter to a greater extent uh, than DraftKings, which is more of a, a, a direct play on the U.S. market. Absolutely. So exactly. So Flutter, you know, it's 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 an interesting business. It has a global operation, but it's not a it's not a U.S. pure play. And you know, investors really like the U.S. pure play right now because there's all this growth expected, and there's none of this regulatory baggage. Yeah, and so let's move on to DraftKings. Uh, you know, similar to fan uh, to to Flutter in the sense that that they have this exposure to the daily fantasy sports market, a built-in uh, customer base uh, that they've been developing over a number of years. However, where DraftKings has a little bit of a different approach has been this merger with SB Tech to really get directly involved in this back-end software powering uh, uh, their 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 gaming offering. I like you talked about earlier, Luis. What does that? offer DraftKings that, that maybe sets them apart from others in the industry? Yeah, so DraftKings um, actually just went public through a, a SPAC offering um, in April. And as part of that SPAC offering, they simultaneously announced a merger with SB Tech, which is basically this uh, B2B software company that powers uh, different um, online ga- gambling scenarios. One of SB Tech's biggest customers is actually state lotteries. So I think they do like the Oregon lottery. Um, But they also have a lot of know-how in terms of how to handle managing customer accounts, how to handle payments. They have um, pretty good sophistication in terms of how to develop content and how to drive innovation for like new forms of play for um, an online gambling scenario. So this is really a, a vertically integrated approach Whereas, um, you know, Flutter, it has, it definitely has the capability to vertically integrate, but it has taken a much more piecemeal approach where Flutter actually uses a lot of third-party content, um, some of which we may talk about in a second. But um, the, the DraftKings approach is interesting. I think by owning the tech stack, there's obviously an opportunity to increase their margins over time, but they could also just control the experience a lot more. So one thing that could be interesting, an interesting opportunity is the ability to allow in-game betting. Um, so basically, you know, some people will will make a will make a wager on a on a sports event um, the day before or the day of, but actually, if you look at the, the, if you look at the way people bet in Europe, um, I think actually two thirds or definitely a majority of, of sports wagers happen are, are placed after, after a match is, has already started. And that's a little bit more of a technological challenge if you think about it, because obviously, you know, the, the odds, the odds of, of the outcomes change during the match, but it's, it's a very engaging way to play and it's a very engaging way to uh, just watch a game as a fan. So 
you know, being able to own that innovation process is actually a, a, a huge potential differentiator for DraftKings. For example, if we get into a scenario where DraftKings has the ability to offer in-game wagers where FanDuel doesn't, I mean, that suddenly gives um, sports gamblers a really big incentive to go and use the DraftKings app over the FanDuel app. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that maybe that ability to to be on the cutting edge of innovation, whereas FanDuel and others may be using an off the box uh, product. Yeah, um, it's also really important when it comes to um, like i i casino the the online um, slots and online roulette and things like that. What 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 you've seen a lot of is these different online gaming companies using the same um, B2B service providers for content. Um, and as, as a player, you know, you'll, you'll pick up on the fact that, well, if DraftKings is using the same iCasino as um, maybe something that like Penn National would, would offer, it's not, it's not a very differentiated experience because they're, they're essentially using the same content provider. So the ability for DraftKings to maybe have it have a have a game that's like unique to DraftKings or proprietary form of play on the iCasino side is actually also a differentiator. Uh, so outside of the SB Tech part of the business, any other uh, key points we should note as far as differentiators uh, between uh, what Flutter offers and maybe differences in, in potential opportunities for the company? Yeah, I, I think the really big thing with Flutter. Well, the, the two the two things that I would point out with Flutter, one we kind of mentioned is that they have a multi-brand approach. So they're they're actually looking to segment their audience. They think that some of their audience will will be more interested in uh, the FanDuel um, app. Maybe they have some brand equity there, but they think that there's a different segment of the audience that will be more inclined to use the FoxBet app. So this is actually a strategy that they've that they've used in other uh, markets to success, where by having a multi-brand approach. They've been able to pick up different segments of, of the player market, whereas DraftKings is really going with its singular brand approach, uh, which is interesting. Um, the other thing that's interesting is um, just the like these other capabilities. So the, the capability to, to cross-sell players into the iCasino. So Flutter has a lot more capabilities in terms of its iCasino just given its merger with the stars group, which gave it poker stars, you know, poker stars has a lot of really interesting casino functionality and Fuller has a lot of really interesting experience operating those kinds of businesses in Europe. Whereas DraftKings is still trying to figure that out. That's not really where DraftKings has, has been focused. So perhaps the SB tech um, acquisition gives them a, a little bit more um, edge there. Um, and you know, one thing that's really important to, to point out in regards to the to the balance between managing an online sports book and managing a, an online casino is that the online casino is actually a very profitable um, business for for all these players because if you think about it, online sports betting is a game of skill. the The odds are fixed. Obviously, the bookie is going to fix the odds in their favor. But there is such a thing as professional sports gamblers. You know, there is a way to, if, if you're really good, there is a way to kind of have an edge yourself. Whereas in the iCasino market, 
you know, the odds are mathematically fixed on like a, like an online slot machine or um, a game like roulette, you know, where the, the, the statistics are, are very obviously in, in the uh, casino's favor. So that tends to be a more profitable activity. Um, however, you know, no one, no one goes to an online casino or most people don't go to DraftKings for its online casino. So having offering the sports book is a really good way to bring the customer in. It's a really good uh, like customer acquisition tool. And then to the extent that you could bring, bring someone into your app because they came for sports, but then cross sell them into the casino. Well, you've just significantly increased the, uh, the value of that customer. Um, so in my opinion, I guess going back to the original question, I think Flutter has a little bit more of a track record with, with running that model. And DraftKings certainly has that capability, but it's, it's just coming up to speed on how to run that model. Okay, Luis, I think we have time to talk about maybe one more company in this space uh, before, before we close out our show. And I want to talk about GAN. We mentioned DraftKings merger uh, with SB Tech to really build out its backend uh, uh, software offerings. GAN, ticker G-A-N, is a company that came public uh, in the U.S. at the beginning of May, and they really uh, provide the back end uh, for FanDuel's uh, both sportsbook and iGaming offering in the U.S., as well as offer that software to a number of other operators uh, in the industry. So, so when we look at GAN today, what do you see as the opportunity for that company? Yeah, so GAN is one of these B2B software providers, and they manage everything from managing the player accounts to the payments to the compliance and they also manage um, a marketplace of um, of like games. So they'll be able to go to a casino, let's say, um, let, let's just say FanDuel, for example, which is one of their customers, as you mentioned. And they'll say, okay, we'll manage we'll manage the whole process, the the customer loyalty. And here's here's a menu of all the best games from all the best uh, content providers, and it's it's really plug and play. It's, it's one single integration that a casino will have to make instead of having to put together a patchwork of different software solutions from various service providers or going through the, like the challenge of building out your own stack, which obviously requires a lot of effort and, and cost. So the analogy that I've been trying to, to come up with is I kind of view GAN as like the Shopify model of, of, this, of this industry where, you know, a lot of people are, are shopping on Shopify, but they don't necessarily know that they're using Shopify. Kind of the same thing with GAN. A lot of people are using GAN, but they don't know they're using GAN because it's white labeled. And GAN also has a similar revenue model where they're taking um, roughly like a 10% cut of, of the revenue as, as compensation. Um, so obviously th- this, is a, this is a potentially very attractive business model if uh, they can continue to scale up and they're actually in a really unique position because they've been operating in the U.S. now for uh, about 10 years. So they, they have a first mover advantage versus all the other B2B software providers in Europe, which are really just now starting to figure out the U.S. market, which is one of the reasons why GAN has been able to grow so quickly. So I think it's a really interesting company. 
Yeah, I mean, so one of the questions I have around GAN is just the customer concentration issue. And when you look at their revenue, I believe the number is somewhere around 50% um, of their revenue comes from their relationship with FanDuel um, and Flutter Entertainment. When, when you look at that that concern, do you see opportunity for the company to diversify its revenue? And, and on the other side, how much risk is there that they might lose that FanDuel business? Yeah, it's it's a really important point. Um, kind of blessing and a curse that they, that they have FanDuel as a customer. Very interestingly, they've been working with uh, Betfair and Patty Power for for about a decade, which are two separate companies that Flutter now owns both of them. So they actually have a really long existing relationship with the Flutter, I guess, umbrella of companies. And um, today they're managing both uh, FanDuel's sportsbook tech as well as their iCasino tech. Um, it's, it's highly likely, and if you read... Um, their financial statement is highly likely that they're gonna that they're gonna lose um, some of that business um, in the next year or so. But there is a huge opportunity now for GAN to basically license its track record with Flutter and just you know use that as a case study for what it could do for other um, other casinos and other online gaming companies. So if you actually look at their last, um, they they actually reported earnings a couple weeks ago. And on the earnings call, they they announced a brand new tier one, what they called a tier one customer, which would be like a multi-state huge customer that that customer alone could potentially double their uh, gaming revenue over, over the next couple of years, which it just kind of it, it just kind of illustrate it illustrates um, how how easy it is for when you're growing off of a really small base, you know, there's still, we're still only in Pennsylvania and New Jersey for the most part. When you're growing off of a really small base and you have a really, and you're known as one of the one or two really competent operators, it actually is, it actually could be really easy for them to diversify their revenue base if they can successfully land big casinos, like they, they seem to be capable of doing. Um, Obviously, if they lose Flutter as a customer, that, that would be a huge risk and a huge hit. But, um, you know, I think there is a big opportunity. And more importantly for GAN, I think the opportunity for them is really not to sell to like the DraftKings and the Flutters who have the skill to build out their own tech stack. But it's probably, be it's probably a better proposition to sell to like the smaller regional casinos that really will never have the scale to build out their own full tech stack. Um, and the last thing I would just point out about GAN, which I think is really great, is that it's already profitable at, at a small at a small size. Right, right. So, so yeah, so when you have this software company that's already profitable, that potentially has a really long runway for growth ahead of it, you can see where, where uh, operating uh, leverage can kick in quickly and that company can really produce uh, some gains. And I think an important thing to think about, we talked about earlier uh, how we expect to see a wave of, of states legalizing, opening up. Um, their markets, that creates an environment where speed to market is really important because you want to capture customers while they're available and, and up for grabs. And, you know, when speed for to market is prioritized, that's where a customer like GAN can really offer some value to these folks. Absolutely. Okay, Luis, so kind of wrapping everything up, uh, as we look at this online gaming industry moving forward over the next, you know, year or five years, what are you going to be paying attention to? 
to evaluate whether the growth that we think is possible in this industry uh, will take place and to just decide uh, whether this is a space you're excited to invest in. Yeah. Um, I think the most important thing to watch is the total addressable market and how that develops, because that's really what's driving the valuations of these companies. So looking at how many states, which states have, uh, have traction with legalization, and then to look at in the states that, that do have legalized gambling, um, how much that's growing and how large the market could be in those states and just trying to clue that into how large the total market could be. Um, yeah, so just really watching the development of the market and seeing to what extent uh, we can really see uh, um, legalization yep. take place. Uh, of these companies uh, we, we talked about today, which one would you be most excited to invest in today and why? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about a lot of them. I think they all offer very unique prospects. I actually own a couple of them. Um, I think I'm most excited about Flutter just because it seems to have everything that it needs to dominate the market here. And it also has an interesting growth opportunity internationally. I also really like Gan. I, I own some of that as well for the for the reasons I mentioned. Um, but you know, I don't see why if if you really believe in this market, you know, I think DraftKings is actually also potentially interesting, depending on how you view the valuation, which is a little bit richer than Flutter. But as a U.S. pure play, it kind of has its own interesting aspects. You know, the last thing I would say that I'm just really I'm just I'd be really interested in watching is just to see what ESPN does. Right. Because there's a lot of potential value there for Disney if ESPN suddenly decides it wants to be a player in this market. And I could see them, you know, they own a ton of sports rights. I could see them very quickly taking a lot of market share, too. Yeah, we'll have to see it. Lots of things. uh, Very fast moving industry here and things changing very quickly. And we'll keep keep on following it as it develops and hopefully can have you on again soon to keep us updated. Yeah, absolutely. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Kyle Carruthers for his work behind the glass. For Luis Sanchez, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.